Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I have recently returned from the great city of Rome, where I was leading a pilgrimage uh, with many people from the United States. We were blessed to be able to see Pope Francis, see the catacombs, the Vatican museums, and most especially, we got to go to the tombs and the sites of the martyrdoms of over 70 different saints. It was incredible. We got to pray there. We got to read from many of their writings and get to know the saints as we were drawing closer to Jesus on this pilgrimage. On a personal note, uh, one of the great blessings was being able to go with my nine-year-old boy, my son Luke. We had a wonderful time together uh, on this pilgrimage. I've also just come back from Ave Maria, Florida. I was there doing some teaching for FOCUS, the Fellowship of Catholic University students. You could pray for all their missionaries. They're gathering for their summer training, getting ready for their mission on campus in the fall. And I want to share with you one big theme I was presenting on this last week. And it's one very important theme. If, if you have a young person in your family life, someone you love, uh, maybe you're raising a teenager, you've got a college student, you got a young adult, maybe you are a teenager, a college student, a young adult, a young married couple. Uh, what is the one thing that keeps young people today from really thriving, from taking that next step in not just in faith, but in in living life well and going deeper and really being the best they can be, certainly with their Christian life, but also just the best they can be in their careers and in their friendships, their dating relationships, their marriages. What is one thing that really keeps people from taking that next step of faith, moving toward greatness? It's fear of discipleship. I'm going to talk about that and explain what I mean by that, but uh, I want to just step back and just consider how the Catholic faith, we have to remember, is just not a set of ideas. It's a way of life. Uh, it, it, Pope Benedict often said that in our our age today, we haven't just lost gospel values. We haven't just lost theology. We've lost just the basics on how to live life well. That's why Pope Benedict says when we're, we're proclaiming the faith, we're evangelizing today, we have to start at the basics. We have to teach people the art of living. People don't know how to live friendship well, dating relationships well, marriage well. Uh, and this art of living, you can't just read in a book or watch on some YouTube how-to video. Uh, it, it's passed on person to person. It's passed on from one community to the next. It's a lived reality. Uh, take St. Augustine. We got to go uh, to the Church of St. Augustine in Rome this last week here, and we were thinking about his life, how he didn't just become a great Christian man from reading about the Christian faith. He became a Christian man because of someone who invested in him, St. Ambrose. Uh, similarly, St. Therese of Lisieux didn't learn her way of holiness just by sitting in a chapel, but she had so many of the foundations laid for her from her parents, from her sisters, from uh, from other priests that spoke into her life. Uh, John Paul II, uh, as brilliant as he was, did not learn the Christian life from just studying philosophy, but from people who invested in him. Uh, particularly a, a young tailor by the name of Jan Taranowski, pouring his life into JP2 and helping him grow in holiness and, and prayer and in Marian devotion. And the, 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 the Catholic faith, the way of life, is the, it's an art of living, and it's passed on person to person. This is what the Bible calls discipleship, when we're passing on the faith from one person to another. Uh, but in our world today, discipleship, 
passing on the art of living is not something that's encouraged. Uh, we live in a secular age that's shaped by a period known as the Enlightenment. And I, I'm not going to go super in depth. I want to make this really simple for you. But I want to zoom in on two moments in, in our history in the United States and, and, and going back even its roots in Europe. But I want to turn to a figure uh, from a couple hundred years ago who really stands out as a, a key voice of the Enlightenment. His name is Immanuel Kant. You don't need to be an expert philosopher here. But he once wrote a work called What is Enlightenment? He said, the enlightened man, the modern man, the enlightened man is someone who thinks for himself, who separates himself from a tradition that's gone before him. And so instead of seeing that there's this great tradition on how to live life, that the art of living is being passed on person to person through the church, through society, through family, through community, what what modern enlightened man wants to do is separate himself from that tradition. Kant said we should we should liberate ourselves from self-incurred tutelage. We shouldn't view life as having any kind of discipleship or apprenticeship. He says enlightenment. The motto of enlightenment is to dare to use your own reason. You know, think for yourself. He says we should be quote independent thinkers who throw off the yoke of tutelage. So you know that modern language we often hear about, just think for yourself, be an independent thinker? That goes all the way back to Kant. And I want you to understand what he's really doing. He's trying to divide us. That's what this philosophy ultimately does. It separates ourselves from a tradition, a community that's gone before us, that has a great art of living that we can learn on and certainly expand and, and, and take further. But, but we've got to enter into it first. And that's exactly what the Enlightenment was doing, separating ourselves from that tradition. So, for example, today, you know, I meet so many young people who, when they hear about the tradition on how to live friendship, they learn about the virtues, for example, from from Aristotle, a great Greek philosopher. They hear about the virtues and friendship, and they said, wow, this is amazing. How come no one ever taught me this before? Or I hear many young young adults say things like this. They'll say, you know, when I hear about theology of the body, I'm learning about the true meaning of sexuality. This is so different than what our secular world is telling us. How come no one ever taught me this before? Well, the reason no one ever taught us these very basic human life skills on sexuality or friendship or virtue is large part is, is was one of the effects of the Enlightenment, of Kant separating ourselves from the tradition that came before, the great tradition of the art of living life well. Uh, you know, it'd be, it, the example I give, like I often give this example, I just use something like this with the Focus Missionaries this last week is, let's say you wanted to learn how to play sports. You wanted to learn how to play soccer. And, and all your parents did was give you a soccer ball and said, okay, go play in the backyard. Good luck with that. And for years and years, you never got to play on another team. You never got to get coaching. You never learned any soccer skills, any soccer strategy. You'd only get so far if all you had was your soccer ball and your own little head in the backyard. <laughs> Same thing with a musical instrument. If you wanted to play harp uh, and, and your parents just bought you a harp and said, okay, go figure it out, but never gave you lessons, didn't give you teachers. No one ever told you about musical theory. You didn't learn about musical notation. You didn't know about the traditional music that went before you. You wouldn't get very far. And the same is true with the art of living. In our modern modern age, we separate ourselves from the tradition and we just tell young people, just be yourself, be your own person, think for yourself, do whatever you want. But we never train them in character. We never train them in virtue. We don't train them with the vision of what friendship really looks like, what community looks like, what love is really all about, what marriage is all about. It's just be your own person. Now, um, 
maybe one other, I'll give you one other little analogy here. I have a daughter, my little daughter, Eleanor. She's two years old. And little Eleanor is so cute. When I come home from work many times, she sees me. She comes to the door, hi, Dada. And she just says, back, back, back. And what she means is she wants to ride on my back. She wants a piggyback ride. And so she wants me to get down on all fours so she can climb up on my back. And we go all around the house and she loves it. But every once in a while, little Eleanor can be in a mood. <laughs> she could get into a little mood where she, she, I see her and I go, Eleanor, want a piggyback ride? She goes, no, dad, dad, no, dad, dad. Like she doesn't want me to come near her. She just wants to be my mom. <laughs> uh, well, Eleanor also sometimes will come to me when she needs some help. She wants me to, to, to help her put her shoes on or help her put her, her shirt on. And she'll come and say, help, dad, dad. And then I help her. But then there's other times where I'll get her shoes and I'll say, okay, can I help you put them on? She's like, no, dada, do itself. Do itself. No, dada, do itself. And she just wants to put her shoes on all by herself. And I, and sometimes I'll just let her try knowing she's not going to get very far. And if she gets them on, they're probably on the wrong feet. <laughs> you know, so, but, but that attitude of do itself, that's the attitude that many people have been raised in today. What do you want marriage to be? Well, do itself. What do you want friendship to be? Do itself. How do you want to live your dating relationships? Do itself. And that attitude keeps us from actually advancing and, and being the best we can be. We can learn from the tradition of the art of living. Let's pass that on. But I want to talk about a second key moment. So we talked about Kant and the Enlightenment, this mentality of be an independent thinker, do itself. But I want to talk about another attitude that's been very, very much promoted in the modern age, of, in recent decades at least, and that's what's often called the self-esteem movement. Uh, if you had to pick a watershed moment, you might pick a 1969, a book written by Nathaniel Brandon, The Psychology of Self-Esteem, many other areas you can turn to. But from that point onward, the emphasis in education and in building community and uh, in sometimes even in, in the workplace management and certainly in parenting is self-esteem. The focus is on self-esteem. And that just makes sense, right? Because if we're no longer teaching people the art of living, we're not teaching them what life is really all about. Everyone just gets to do itself, do their own thing. Then then we're not going to focus on the virtues and character as much. We're just going to, we just let people do whatever they want. Let them do itself, but let's help them feel good about it. Let's help them feel good about themselves as they're creating themselves. <laughs> that becomes the focus. And so you see in journal articles being written starting in the 1970s into the 80s, into the 90s, every decade, they double the amount of academic journal articles all on this idea of self-esteem. So much so that by the time you get to the 2000s, there are over 15,000 academic journal articles all about why self-esteem is the most important thing. And that starts trickling down into the mainstream through the popular media where there's many pop self-help books and parenting books and talk show hosts on radio and television all about the most important thing we could do for young people is give them self-esteem, help build them up in self-esteem. So this becomes a chief parenting goal. A chief parenting goal isn't about character or virtue or training them in the art of living, how to prepare for a career, how to prepare for a future marriage. No, it's just about helping kids feel good about themselves. Telling your children, you're special. You can do anything you want. So this is the generation that starts raising kids and they don't keep score at Little League games anymore. And they give everyone a trophy at their soccer game or their swim meet. They get all their ribbons. And, uh, and it's, it's all about, let's just make the kids feel good about themselves. But I'll tell you, I've talked to many young adults who've told me all those trophies and ribbons and medals they got, deep down, they kind of knew they were empty. They kind of knew that 
it wasn't for something they achieved. <laughs> uh, my kids, I know that's their experience. You know, they get a ribbon for something. You know, they, they, they swam a lap and didn't get disqualified, so they get a participant's ribbon. They don't care about those ribbons. Those ribbons are on the floor. They're lost in a corner. They get thrown away. But, man, when their soccer team wins a tournament, ooh, that trophy, they keep that trophy on the shelf. They're proud of that trophy because they know they earned it. You know, I, I talked to one young adult recently who told me, you know, all those trophies that we won, so we didn't really win, but those trophies we got, he said, I, I knew that deep down, I, I liked them at a certain level, but deep down I knew it wasn't real. It wasn't based on anything. It wasn't reflecting anything I actually had done. And this young adult had this other observation. He said, and, and deep down, I, I think I realized over time it was just for my parents. In other words, my parents wanted to feel good about their parenting. They wanted to feel good about me, that I, that I accomplished something. So when I would get a trophy, it was, it was exciting for them. But I deep down knew that it was empty. We don't want empty praise. You know, affirmation is good. I want to be clear. We should affirm. We should build. I mean, I hope everyone has a a good (laughs) self-esteem. That's a good thing, you know. But real self-esteem isn't built on empty praise. No, no. uh, Praise should be uh, an external manifestation of a reality inside a person. And every person has dignity as a son and daughter of God. No matter how many faults they have, how many weaknesses they have, how many times they sin, no matter how smart and whatever grades they get or what they place, they all have dignity in the eyes of God. Let's praise things that are are worth praising. Let's praise that. Let's praise people's hard effort. Like somebody worked hard, that, that's worth affirmation. Maybe they didn't get the great grade or the great score, but they worked hard. That, that's, let's focus on that kind of thing. Uh, let's praise people for virtue. Praise them for growing in character. Praise them for, for, for growing in patience and generosity and sacrifice and courage. That's worth praising. But empty praise doesn't really stick. And young people know it deep down. Um, it's interesting, you know, in back in the 1920s, moms were asked, what is your chief parenting goal? What, what, do you, what, do you, what is your outcome? What do you hope for your kids? You know what mom said in the 1920s? I hope that my kids will, will, will be honest. That's my main goal. I want them to be honest men and women. Or I want them to be industrious. I want them to be hardworking. Or I want them to be loyal. You know what people today say, parents today say, what they want for their kids? I want my kids to feel good about themselves. I want them to feel good about themselves. Or, or they say, I want them to be independent. Or I want them to be tolerant. Again, those things are fine. But let's focus on character. You know, there was a, a great study done. I shared this with the Focus Missionaries. I think it was done at the University of Illinois, where they had a set of American parents and Chinese parents kind of mixed together, and their kids were taking, um, I think it was a math test. And there were two halves of the math test, and, and, and there was a break in between the two halves. And they rigged the test to make it really, really hard so that all the kids got really low scores. And then they observed the way the Chinese parents interacted with their kids at that halftime. So the the parents would all see the score at halftime. And then they had some time with their kids. and 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 the study observed how the Chinese parents and the American parents interacted with their kids when they saw the low score. The Chinese parents were hard on their kids. They said, whoa, what happened here? You normally do a lot better than this. Uh, are you are you feeling okay? Are you not paying attention? Uh, are you are you working hard? Uh, are you you got to double check your answers. They were really trying to coach their kids, and then they watched the American parents. It was just the opposite. The American parents 
oftentimes just avoided the topic. They didn't want to talk about the test. You could tell the parents were nervous. They were, uh, so what do you want to eat for dinner tonight, Johnny? Or uh, do you want to see a movie? Or maybe if they did talk about the test, they go, oh, well, how do you feel you did? Oh, just keep working hard. Just try your best. And But didn't really help their kid try to do better. So guess what happened in the second half of this test? The Chinese kids' grades went up significantly, whereas the American kids didn't improve that much because <laughs> the Chinese kids were really coaching, discipling, mentoring the next generation to help them. Um, so I think you see this with parenting. You see it. It's also a chief educational goal. Uh, many educational philosophers started saying in this period, oh, we shouldn't use red ink because red ink is too alarming, too scarring for the children. Uh, and there was massive grade inflation in this time period. In 1968, only 18% of American freshmen got A's in a class. So only 18% got A's, whereas by 2004, about half of all students got A's. And it wasn't because people got smarter in those decades. We actually know that SAT scores got lower in that period. <laughs> so it was just you know the idea of affirmation. We got to praise. We got to build up. Uh, there was a young a young adult that once told me. She, I think she did a young uh, she did a overseas uh, abroad a semester semester abroad in France, and she was working at a school, and she was working with the the kids in the school in in, in the art class. And all these kids would come and show her the pictures, and the pictures weren't really done that well. You couldn't tell what they were, but but she just wanted to be very affirming. So she said, oh, I really like your picture. Oh, that's really good. Good job. Good job. And then finally, the master teacher heard this and walked over to the American college student and said, why are you doing this? These pictures aren't good. Why do you Americans always give this empty praise? You know, these pictures aren't good. Don't you love these children? Don't you want the children to get better? You have to help them. You have to show them how to draw pictures better. And you could do that in a gentle and a kind and a loving way to build them up. But but to just give all this empty praise isn't helpful. <laughs> uh, and, and I think, again, that's part of our, our American t- mentality here. So to think about the effects. What effect does this have if a, a generation of young people grow up with the enlightenment as the dominant world around them where they're they're just told to do itself they're told you know just be your own person just think for yourself they're not really immersed in a great tradition that's gone before them that, that that's supposed to mold them and shape them no it's just i'm just gonna go figure out life for myself and then they're told constantly through the self-esteem movement influence that they're just special and they're wonderful and they're great and they're successful they just do great things and and, and they're told they're just trained to feel good about themselves Think about what happens when when these young people enter into the workforce or they enter into mission work or they enter into marriage and family life. They oftentimes will overestimate their abilities. You know, 80% of American teenagers say that they're really good at math, whereas in Asia, only 20% do. I think that's fascinating because we know Asians actually are doing better in math <laughs> in general. So uh, we have we tend to have an inflated view of ourselves. In the 1950s in the United States, only 12% of American teenagers said, I'm a very important person. Only 12% thought they were a very important person. But today, 80% of American teenagers think, I'm a very important person. Uh, here's uh, my favorite one here is... Uh, most most young adults today think that the next Bill Gates is going to be in their generation. And I think they're right. There will be a new Bill Gates, a new Steve Jobs, somebody you know that is going to be the great innovator, great billionaire. There is going to be in this next generation. But here's what's this is what's what's fascinating. Fifty four percent of American teenagers say, 
I know the next Bill Gates. In other words, the next Bill Gates is one of my friends. And then 24% of these teenagers, young adults, they say, I will be the next Bill Gates. 24%, almost one in four think they will be the next Bill Gates, you know, which just isn't realistic. Uh, so, you know, many times what happens is, and I, and I'm, I want to be very clear here, this is, these are broad generalizations. I'm not trying to say this is every single uh, young adult, you know, but, but I would say that there are many people in the secular business world, people have written in Harvard Business Review, for example, that have talked about the challenges of the younger generation coming into the workplace. They bring a lot of gifts to the workplace that previous generations didn't have. We could talk about that whole other episode, but they also bring certain challenges. And this is one of the challenges that many people have, 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 have documented. Uh, but it's not just in the secular business world. I want you to know, I've talked to many rectors at seminaries who've told me, yeah, they've got many young adults coming into seminary life, and they think, wow, the Catholic Church is so lucky to have me. I'm going to be just a wonderful priest, and I'm just going to be so special. And they don't realize, no, seminary is a lot about just being broken down <laughs> and, and being formed in the tradition of what it means to be a priest and being shaped and molded, and they've got big gaps in their lives, to, and, and they're going to need a lot of grace to help them get there. That many, This becomes a source of tension in many seminaries today. I've talked to many leaders in diocesan chancery offices, leaders in parishes who've told me that they love hiring the, you know, this younger generation because there's so much faith and enthusiasm and creativity and zeal. And yet they'll also say one of the biggest challenges is that they often come in and they just think they're going to solve the problem in the parish. They're going to solve the problem in the diocese. They got all the answers and, and they oftentimes don't go in with a certain docility or humility of, oh, you know what? Actually, I, I, yeah, I have a lot to contribute, but man, this parish, this diocese, this seminary has a lot to shape me. It's going to do so much good for me because I have a lot to learn. I have a lot to grow in. You know, we, we don't want to go into the workplace with a do-itself attitude like my little Eleanor. <laughs> I can do itself. Um, let me be clear here. There's a little caveat. It's good to have dreams. I hope that we all have big dreams in life. God wants us to do that. He wants to do great things in us and through us. But So let's dream big. But let's dream big with the little way. Let's dream big the way St. Therese would dream big. You know, Therese had big dreams. She had wonderful things she wanted to accomplish in her life. You know, as a young teenage girl, she she wanted to evangelize criminals that were on death row. There was a man named Pranzini who was going to be killed and executed for his crimes. And she kept praying for his repentance. And he refused, refused, refused. And finally, on the day of his execution, he finally turns to a crucifix and turns back to God. She had big dreams. Therese wanted to, such so big dreams that she wanted to spend her heaven doing good on earth. Big dreams for St. Therese. She wanted to be the, the, this great saint for God. But here's the thing about Therese. She had big dreams, but her dreams were not rooted in an inflated view of herself. They weren't rooted in an overconfident view of her own abilities and what she brought to the table. It was quite the opposite. St. Therese had big dreams that were rooted in a profound sense of her inadequacies, her shortcomings, her gaps, her weaknesses. She knew herself well. She knew that, yeah, she might have had some good qualities, but she had a lot of areas of weakness and falling and failings and sins and, and things that kept her from being the best she could be. And because she was convinced of her littleness, that's what enabled her to be so bold 
in which she would beg God to accomplish in her life. Let's be men and women like Therese. Amen. Let's be men and women that have big dreams, but big dreams that are based on a conviction of how small we are and how much we have to learn and how much our boss, how much our, our, our parents, how much our church, how much our pastor can teach us and help us to, to get there and get better. But this is sadly what we, we failed the next generation in, in, in helping them grow in this kind of humility. So one thing I always encourage this is what I did with the Focus Missionaries. One very practical thing we can do is go into our careers, go into our first jobs, go into our marriages, go into our parenting with great humility. Go in knowing, yes, I, I, I might have learned a lot and I might have taken a theology of body class and I know a lot about marriage and all, but there's a lot I don't know. And, I, and, and be the kind of man and woman that's just hungering to learn more. You know, Mother Teresa, what a great saint she was. But Mother Teresa, anytime she had a chance to learn from someone else, someone that wasn't as holy as she was, someone that wasn't as wise as she was, someone that didn't have as much life experience as she was, she was just so eager to learn any crumb of truth that would help her live the Christian life better. That's the humility of a Mother Teresa. That's the humility of a St. Therese. Let's go into our marriages, into our families, into our dating relationships, and into our jobs with that kind of humility. You know, many times, one thing that uh, a lot of uh, studies have shown is that a lot of young adults, when they go into the workforce, they often feel like they have to project a certain image. They have to um, they have to pretend that they've got all the answers, that they're, they're competent, that, that everything's okay. And, and actually, let's not let, let's go in with humility. Let's, you know, if there's something that we're asked to do in the workplace and we're not sure how to do it, it's okay. Go to our, bo- go to our boss and say, hey, I'm not sure exactly what, what you're asking or, you know, I don't have a lot of experience in this. Do you have any recommendations? That's helpful. Uh, it's okay to ask for help. It's actually better to ask for help. And it's okay to make mistakes. You know, one of the things that the Augustine Institute we have as a core value, humility. And what, what I, I know I, I have done all throughout these years is whenever I hire a new employee, I sit them down, I go through our core values in their first couple of weeks, and I always talk about humility is the most important here. I, I tell them, look, if you're going to make mistakes, and that's fine. You, there's going to be times where you're going to have a task and you're not going to know what to do. That's okay. You don't have to impress me. You don't have to project a certain image. It's okay. And, and you can just come and just say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this or I dropped the ball here. Uh, if, if I have an employee that can come humil- humbly like that to me, I am so thankful. It's the ones that think they know how to do it already. They want to do it self, that they got all the answers. And, and, then they're, they, they, and, and then it's only at the last minute that I find out about a problem. That's what causes greater turmoil for an organization. Let's be the kind of men and women that are humbly willing to go ask advice, seek counsel, uh, and also own our mistakes. You know, when we make a mistake, sometimes that's so painful for some people. They, they feel like, oh my goodness, if I make a mistake, I'm a failure. My boss isn't going to like me. My peers are going to think less of me. And it becomes a crisis moment. No, no, no. If you feel that in you, turn to Jesus. Say, Jesus, help me not to seek the praise of men, but help me to to just be a man, of, a woman of character and seek the praise of you, <laughs> you know, and just be honest and go to people and seek help and admit when we fall short. Uh, let's welcome feedback, welcome critique, not let it crush us. We want to be men and women that grow, that get better. But if we have the attitude of the enlightenment, do itself. 
If we have the attitude of the self-esteem moment, I'm so special, I've got it already down, I'm just great. If that's if that if those two things, the enlightenment and the self-esteem movement is what shaped me, that's what's gonna really prevent me from being the best in my parish, the best in my workplace, the best in my marriage, the best in my family. But if we can see humbly, like Therese, like Mother Teresa, that there's a great tradition that's gone before us, and there are other men and women that have mastered this tradition of my job or of marriage or of family life, and I can learn from them, and I want to learn from them, that's what's going to help propel me to move forward and to take the next step of faith that God has for me in my life and really grow in greatness. Well, my friends, whether you are a parent that has a young adult that you're raising or whether you are a young adult, if you found any of this helpful, please pass on this episode to others. Uh, and if you have any questions on this, please reach out to me on Facebook or Twitter, or you can reach me on my website, which is edwardsree.com. I hope this has been inspiring and shedding some light on some of the, the, the blessings, but also challenges uh, that people face in our age today. May God bless you.